Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park, the podcast covering every dinosaur, monster, or otherwise movie that happened before Jurassic Park because Jurassic Park changed the way we looked at creature features forever. Today, we are talking about Jaws. There are a few instances where this podcast will cover the truly iconic. Jaws is not only one of the best monster movies of all time, it's one of the best movies of all time. Endlessly rewatchable and enjoyed by millions. The film succeeds despite the fact that it had one of the most harrowing, difficult film productions of all time. In the beginning, there was just a book by Peter Benchley, and it was preparing for release. But before it even reached the stands, Richard Zanuck and David Brown bought the rights. And they took on the role as executive producers in order to transform the tale of enmity to the big screen. When a young Steven Spielberg stopped by their office, the manuscript caught his eye and cinema history was born. What happened next is a series of decisions that can only be viewed as naive. They decided to film the entire movie all on open water. This was something that had never been done, especially on an effects feature. Salt water and oceans do not work well with mechanical sharks, but they would not realize the height of their arrogance until they were well into production. The initial screenplay was written by Benchley himself. After a few drafts by Benchley, they brought on Howard Sackler. Sackler did an uncredited touch-up of the script and added things such as the Indianapolis. Uh, He did not fully explore that. John Milius wrote an even longer Indianapolis speech, and then Robert Shaw rewrote it himself. Uh, But with a very short lead time, Spielberg brought on Carl Gottlieb, who did another pass at the script. Gottlieb was also hired as an actor, which ensured he'd be able to be on location to write as the film progressed. Gottlieb and Benchley are who the credited screenplay ends up with. Gottlieb was writing up against the gun for the first few months of production and had to rush pages to screen. When all of the dust settled, Gottlieb actually got paid more for his acting than he did his writing. Before principal filming began, they set out shark experts Ron and Valerie Taylor to go and film real live shark footage. They went to Australia with some miniatures and a 4.9 X racehorse jockey by the name of Carl Rizzo in order to give the illusion of scale for the final film. The most significant addition is what happens to Hooper in the final picture. A shark got caught in the wires of the boat whilst they are filming with a shark cage, and it lost it. The footage was great, and they wanted to use it in the final film. However, the cage is visible in the shot, and it is completely empty. So they allowed Hooper to survive, unlike his demise in the book. The non-shark elements were filmed with the entire production taking place in Martha's Vineyard. Joe Alves was a production designer and is the one who eventually found the vineyard and marked it as the perfect place to film. It had all the requirements for filming and the effects work were to be done in tandem and they had space in the vineyard to do so. They wanted the production finished by July 1974 as there was the possibility of an actor strike. They did not meet this goal. Robert Shaw had 55 days left on his visa and wanted to finish all of his scenes before his visa expired. They did not meet this goal. Whilst the non-shark elements were being worked on, the effects team got to work creating the titular Jaws of the picture. Effects master Bob Maddy was brought on out of retirement to work on the picture. He had done water effects and had experience with some pretty elaborate miniatures, most notably the giant squid for Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That was controlled in a studio tank, not the wide open ocean. Ocean has different requirements in terms of what kind of paint they could use, and saltwater did a huge number on the mechanical workings inside the shark. They moved up the shark requirements early on top of all of this, as they found out that getting people to swim off-season at Martha's Vineyard was not advisable as the water was just too cold and they would literally need to have their sunbathers in wetsuits in order to keep them safe. They briefly considered doing this and making flesh-colored wetsuits. Thankfully, they did not do this. Though, while they decided to wait until the waters warmed up, they put the shark 
rushed right into production. And the first time they tried to test out the shark in the open water, it sank to the bottom of the sea. What would follow is cinematic folklore. The shark didn't work is a cliche at this point. There were three full-sized shark props made with a left and right shark who were partial sharks and one full-on full shark. It took 15 people to operate said shark, and if something went wrong, effects men with no diving experience had to go into the water and frantically attempt to fix it. The boat the shark would do battle with is actually a retooled Nova Scotia lobster boat called the Warlock, named the Orca on the film. They made an exact replica of this ship that was specifically built to sink and resurface. This is one of the effects that reportedly they didn't have any issues with. Putting the sole issue with production on the shark is a vast oversimplification. See, they required perfect weather and since they had gone so vastly over schedule, they continued to have to contend with other boats on the horizon since Martha's Vineyard was now in full vacation mode. The other huge issue with filming outdoors was ensuring continuity of light and of the sun. They only had so much time in the day to get certain shots if they wanted to maintain the location of the sun from shot to shot. The boat sequences take place in about two to three days if you're kind of trying to really narrow it down, which meant that they did not have a lot of extra time to play sequences if they wanted to move something to a night shot, for example, as it just would not really fit with the continuity of the story. Every morning, they'd have to find out if the weather was right. Then they would have to get on boats and ferry the entire crew to where the effects barge and the orca was anchored for the day. Sequences would only be filmed if everything lined up just right, which led to a lot of people sitting around with nothing to do. This got the entire crew on edge, including Roy Scheider, who reportedly had an onset freakout. Everyone was on the verge, including Spielberg himself. Once the film had finally wrapped and he allowed himself to go back to civilization, he had a full-on panic attack. He had just been holding in so much. Editor Werner Fields was on set for the production, working closely in tandem with Spielberg to edit the dailies and put together rough cuts in order to ensure the big wigs didn't see any footage that would make them lose confidence in the picture. Once the film was wrapped, Fields edited the entire thing with Spielberg in her pool house. For filming the final version of the iconic reveal of the fisherman's decapitated head, Spielberg filmed the sequence inside of Field's pool after they denied him the opportunity to reshoot it in their tank. Fields would later become one of the first female vice presidents of feature production at Universal. She won a hugely deserved Oscar for her work on the picture. Jaws was, by all intents and purposes, hell to shoot. Spielberg had nightmares for years after. However, even through all of the hardships and all of the days over budget, it still went down as one of the best movies of all time, forever changing the cinematic landscape. It opened wide to 500 theaters instead of the usual slow and slutty release that was the norm. It was the first Hollywood blockbuster and changed our cinematic landscape as we know it. It is one of the biggest examples of film as a collaborative art. Jaws is one of the biggest reasons why I've always believed that the auteur theory is bullshit. Everyone from Joe Alves, the production designer, to John Williams and his iconic score, to, you know, Verna Fields and her editing choices, everybody who touched the film had an impact on the final picture. True auteurship does not exist in film. As opposed to doing a creature breakdown, as we normally do, this time we're going to outline the impact of Jaws on the real world. See, Jaws had a tremendous impact on cinema, but a horrible impact on the public's views of sharks. Even prior to its release, the production had a rocky relationship with the real creatures. The tiger shark that was hung up at one point in the movie is a real shark, who they killed for that one scene. They shot it with a shotgun in Miami, and they had to put it on its own chartered flight in order to get it to the picture. 
the filming of that sequence took so long that they had to have people come and do makeup on the rotting shark in order to maintain continuity. It's not used for anything but that shot, especially since it was rotting. You couldn't use it for food or anything of that nature. During the filming, the crew on the ocean would also catch sharks, and then they would gut the sharks as chum for catching further sharks. More senseless violence. Once the film was released in full, the violence against the creatures did not stop. The following would be information sourced from a 2017 article published by the University of Melbourne called How Jaws Killed Sharks. Since 1791, there have been a total of 703 unprovoked shark attacks. Out of these attacks, only 186 were fatal. On average, globally, sharks kill about 10 people annually. That hasn't stopped humans from murdering over 63 million of the creatures in 2014 alone, with some species having 90% of their populations wiped out. The mass hysteria people felt about getting into the water post-Jaws led to some truly horrible results. However, there is hope and understanding is possible. In 2004, a real-life shark showed up in Martha's Vineyard, and instead of having the populace drive out the shark with shotguns and murder the animal, the town rallied behind the creature and rescued it, ensuring that it would get out of the harbor and back to its home. And that, my friends, is Jaws, the behind the features. But let's talk about the feature itself, and let's bring on our guest. Today, we are joined by the great Anthony. Hello, Anthony. Wow, I've, I've never been called the great Anthony, <laughs> but, but hello. Hello, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and might I say, that was a phenomenal introduction. I, I almost forgot to uh, speak up when, when you were introducing me because I was so enraptured uh, uh, by, that, by that intro, so, so great job. Thank you, thank you. Uh, it only took uh, like four documentaries and three books, so you know it had to. It took a lot. Oh, child's play, yeah. <laughs> child's play, child's play, child's play. Good thing work has been dead, and I can just read all day. Hmm? Don't tell my boss. Uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> would you like to, you know, do an introduction of who you are, what you do, and why you love the film Jaws so much? Yeah, of course. Um, my name is Anthony Darrington. Um, I'm the founder of Something Ghoulish. Um, we're, we're a genre film site that kind of delves into horror, sci-fi, kaiju, thriller, and what have you. Um, we create such podcasts like Ghoulish Casts of Gods and Monsters, uh, Gargantu Cast, um, and many more <laughs> on the horizon. Um, and yeah, I just absolutely love movies. And so... And one of my favorite movies is Jaws. So, so getting an opportunity to just kind of gush about Jaws is, is uh, one I'd never pass up. Um, Jaws, for me, is one of those films that blends um, charisma, horror, wonder, uh, friendship, and just all these brilliant feelings in, into one truly perfect film. I, I've seen Jaws so many times, and... I personally can't pick out one thing that I don't like about that movie. Even the shark, uh, you know, or or the sharks, I should say, um, to me, I think are still perfect in in their own I, regard. I've 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 always found that fascinating. Um, in that, like, I guess I have different expectations from my effects work than other people do perhaps because i've always heard that that common joke like i mean it even comes up in back to the future part two right where it's like oh the shark still looks fake mm -hmm. um and i have never uh, gone for I, I don't know i didn't expect to think of it as like a realistic portrayal right i'm giving into a fantasy of a movie right um and and if the movie is and by the way the movie of course is working because this is jaws right like it's working on all levels so you just kind of go with the picture and if the movie scared people as much as it clearly did because it had such a huge impact i do wonder if some of that is just people kind of trying to be like yeah it didn't scare me the shark was fake and let alone they probably were screaming in the theater you know what i mean mm-hmm 
But I mean, I, I guess I also come back from a background of, you know, I'm doing a monster movie podcast. So obviously <laughs> I have a different uh, relationship with the way that the effects are done than other people do. Right, right. Yeah, I've I've heard so many people critique um the the shark and its effects. There there are times where the shark you can kind of see its jaw and it almost looks like hinged in a way. Right. Um but other than that, I've I've never really had an issue. And and I will say, I guess in in regard to shark films, I think Deep Blue Sea probably had the best uh practical sharks um when we did see practical sharks. Um but Yes, Jaws, in my opinion, still holds up in its practical effects. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There, there were supposed to be so they there were so many journeys with the effects because they had no idea what they were doing at first, and they had no concept of even like where to start. So there was even uh, early on they were pitched to go to Toho and like get like it done like Tokusatsu style. Oh, could you imagine? That, that would, would be crazy. so interesting. Yeah, and this is like 73. So this is like, they're not, Toho is not at the top of its game effects wise. But if you brought in that universal budget, which even if it was like, a, even if they lowered the budget for the film, if they were doing that effects, it still would be way more than they ever had to deal with with Toho, right? So it would have been uh, fascinating because that would have been that weird moment of, now we have like a Spielberg tokusatsu film. Like that's very, <laughs> that's, very strange they were also like uh you know spielberg himself was very cognizant of the effects because the film was originally supposed to open with uh in spielberg's version right so spielberg got a hold of uh peter benchley's script and he rewrote his own version but that version is like nobody's ever actually read that version outside of what he said about like certain ideas because he was kind of embarrassed by it and like shelved it so i didn't really mention it other than the fact that he wanted Quint's introduction to be in a movie theater watching Moby Dick, the 1957, sorry, 56 Moby Dick, in which Quint would be laughing at how bad the effects were. (laughs) I love that. And I I love that too. And they got pretty, like, they really wanted to do this, uh, this sequence, but apparently Gregory Peck, who played Ahab in the movie, he hated his performance in that movie and he wouldn't release the rights. He didn't want he didn't want anyone to see his performance in that movie. So uh, we lost that scene. But that would have been a very interesting scene. And I guess that would have added an extra wrinkle because I for whatever reason I don't see Amity as a town with a movie theater. So right. that would have been that would have I mean, I guess this is just a nerd thing where to add it onto the Amity map in my head, but but that is a weird thing. So do we do we need to start a petition for the Spielberg cut of Jaws? <laughs> <laughs> Give us the Spielberg cut. I'm pretty sure Spielberg himself like is everything he talk every time he talks about Jaws, he he I don't get the feeling that this is a man who can really enjoy the movie. Like oh, no. I, <laughs> I think that the movie has forever been scarred by his own experiences on it because he every time he talks it's just like he's so defeated like he's so defeated and he's like man like i don't really want to revisit this, <laughs> this stuff like let's not talk about it um but his studio like he he cares enough to 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 make sure that the restorations are still good um and he cares about the movie obviously because he made it but uh there was a really i got the new 4k blu-ray uh to watch and oh my god i've never seen jaws look prettier uh, but one of the things was about uh, the restoration. And I think it's an archival um, special feature because I think it might have been uh, archived from when they did the Blu-ray re-release. But but regardless, it talked about how it had final uh, approval by Spielberg and his team. Like he had to look at it and make sure that they, you know, they didn't just go off and do their own thing. They, they kind of held true to what it was. And there is still minor changes. It's mostly like color coloring um there's uh there's like a scene where right near the indianapolis speech uh with quint uh there's a scene where it cuts to roy scheider and the background uh like they were clearly shot at like either very close to or different times of the day 
uh, because the the Roy Scheider one, the light outside of his like window is like noticeably lighter before they touched it up and like made it to match the exact color and tone of Quint's background. Mm. But again, it's one of those things where you really would not I don't think you would ever notice it unless you had watched the movie like 17 million times because in that scene, like it's so focused on those characters' faces that I would I don't think I would ever have noticed that myself. Right, right, yeah. Un- unless you were, you know, set to just pick out any type of flub that you, you know, you were you were looking to find some type of continuity error. But I mean, during that speech, which is one of the best speeches ever in film, I mean, you know, why would you even be paying attention to the background? You'd be so just focused uh, on that monologue. Right. Yeah. Like so, so focused on that that monologue. So I guess let's, you know, let's start from uh, start from the beginning and just like really kind of go and tackle this tackle this movie. Um, did you have uh, where in your like history does this fall as far as far as watching Spielberg movies for you? Um, I'm not sure at the exact point in my life when I saw Jaws and I feel like this is the same way with a lot of great films in in, you know, in certain regard, that Jaws has always been there and it never necessarily had a fixed point in my life. Like, it just slowly appeared somehow and I've always known of its existence and then I've watched it over and over again. Does that make any sense? Like, it's almost... Oh, no, that makes makes perfect sense. It's, like, omnipresent in your life, right? Right, exactly. It's hard to imagine uh, before Jaws. Right, a time before Jaws. I was born, there was Jaws, that was it. Like, (laughs) um, I I will say, I probably saw Jurassic Park before I saw Jaws. I definitely saw E.T. before I saw Jaws. Um, And those are the two Spielberg films I can say for certain that I've seen um before and then jaws existed um but it it was one of those films that um i i got into horror movies uh mostly in like middle school and high school and i kind of you know watched uh you know youtube channels and read blogs and and just kind of followed different magazines um you know things in fangoria and i just kind of created homework for myself and i would go to the video store i would pick up releases um, and so Jaws was definitely one of those things that I kind of uh, recorded from TV and just watched over and over again at some point. Um, and then, of course, I would start picking up every type of Jaws thing I could. You know, I, I, I have that recent Blu-ray that you were speaking of. Um, I have Jaws on VHS um, for you know, <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, I would love to get that 4K restoration because that sounds brilliant. I, I would love to take a look at that. Um, and then, yeah, it, it, Jaws has impacted my life so much just because it's such a spectacle of a film. It, it never gets old. It's one of those things that I can just put on whenever. Um, truly, truly. I, I yeah. love the the characters. I love how they interact. I love the world of Amity. Um, I think... It's a, a truly flawless film. Um, on, a, on a personal note as well, um, the scene of the courtroom scene where, um, or I said, I should say um, the town meeting, town hall meeting scene where um, Quint, you know, kind of runs his fingers down the chalkboard and he kind of makes the bargain and deal to all the townsfolk of I'll hunt the shark for you. Um, that drawing of, of the, the crude drawing of the shark eating the person on the chalkboard. Um, I, I got that tattooed on my, uh, inner right bicep as an homage. Yeah. That's amazing. That is that. Okay. You know, that is an amazing tattoo. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It was my very first tattoo. And I knew immediately I wanted that because it it was just one of those small, weird things from Jaws. I was like, this would be perfect. Um, So yeah. And, and every time I show it to people, you know, everyone usually gets kind of a laugh because like, why does that look so, uh, can I, can I swear? Am I allowed to swear? Oh yes. Oh yes. (laughs) Most people react and say, uh, you know what, why is your tattoo so shitty looking? (laughs) And I say, well, it's from Jaws and I show them the scene and they're like, oh, okay. And that's really, that's really funny. But it's a great conversation starter. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. I can't. 
imagine anyone else playing Quint either. Like, it's it's a it's amazing because they went through so many potential actors in terms of Quint. Mm-hmm. I believe that I I think it was Lee Marv Lee Marvin was originally going to be Quint at one point. Um, and then they also they had hired an actor by the name of Sterling Hayden, uh, and this guy sounds like he would have been perfect for Quint in that he was currently living on a sail barge in Paris because he was trying to run away from the IRS. <laughs> so so he could add like so he could do writing for for whatever reason. I guess there was some weird tax loophole in the seventies where he could write. But anything that he made in terms of, like, acting money, he would have to pay to the IRS. So they briefly considered doing a very sketchy thing, which is (laughs) buying a book from him for $30,000 and then paying him just 30 bucks a day actor-wise. And they, hmm. they were they were briefly considering trying to pull one over on the IRS, and I was like, uh-uh, no, that that didn't happen. And uh, yeah, they eventually brought Robert Shaw, and thank God, <laughs> <laughs> Shaw was apparently like super plastered during most. Oh of the yes, filming too. <laughs> oh my goodness, some of the stories behind Shaw being plastered is just kind of crazy. But it actually worked in the character's favor because. Pretty much all of the Quint dialogue and the way that he talked and the way that he learned the dialect is because he would drink with the locals. Like he would sit down and he would like drink with all of these like local fishermen and they would tell him tall tales. And then he would take that as reality and tell that to certain news places. There's a clip of him on a news show where he was like, yeah, Amity is the place where there's the most incest in all of America. <laughs> because somebody was, like, fucking with him and, like, was just, like, making fun of all the rich people on the island and were just like, oh, this place is, like, so much incest in this place. And then he took it as reality and you could see him, like, saying it in interviews and you're like, oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> I'll have to seek this out. That sounds absolutely hilarious. Have you seen the deleted scene? Uh, like there's, there's like the deleted scenes for Jaws. Eh, there's nothing that like really uh, kind of was a uh, oh I can't believe you cut this out. Other than one scene with Quint, where he goes into a, a shop and this is like before I don't know where in the movie this would have been because it's a very peculiar scene chronologically but he goes into a shop and he's like buying something from this lady and there's this kid who's playing clarinet and and it's like a split diopter shot where you can see the kid with the clarinet in the foreground and quint in the background and this kid starts playing and quint just starts mocking him by like like humming around with the song as he's doing it (laughs) And then the kid starts like going off out of tune and like squeaking, squeaking. And like Quint just like progressively like starts humming the like proper tune at him, angrier and angrier and louder and louder. <laughs> and it's the funniest, it's one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. That is so oh. odd. Very it's odd. It's so odd. It's so <laughs> odd because I don't like they, they filmed it too. Like it was a finished uh scene and i was like why is this here like i can see why you cut this out i love this but it's just very very odd do you have uh much experience with shaw as an actor um i'm not super familiar with his uh filmography unfortunately it's it's something that i've been meaning to delve further into he has like weird he shows up in in a lot of st- weird stuff like mm-hmm. one of his most famous is like from Russia with love if you want to see like a real young Robert Shaw he plays the, the like Russian James Bond in that movie where he's like one of the only true empowering threats to bond and they have like a crazy fight on a train that's like one of the best uh bond scenes in history um so he's really good in that uh most recently before this movie he appeared in the sting and he was like the villain of the sting and uh that's like an amazing uh robert redford paul newman con movie that is just a a blast from start to finish so it's uh yeah it's definitely worth checking that one out um yeah apparently when they were making the movie uh just because we're on robert shawfax uh they locals just shot at his door because they thought no one was home (laughs) and i was like what 
so a lot of these stories come from Carl Gottlieb's book called The Jaws Log, which was like released like right after the movie had been made. So there's like a lot of like newer um, making of books, and I kind of steered away from them a little bit. Uh, one because like the Jaws Log is just amazing, but it too it was also like made very recent to the production, so there's not as much time between. Uh, between when it was made so like the memories are still like very fresh in everyone's mind and they just like in the book it just casually says oh yeah i thought no one was home and then the like after the next like the next sentence is like i don't know why that worked <laughs> like, like, it was like i don't know why anyone fell for that like that's the weirdest thing that i've ever heard like that's a very bizarre bizarre thing uh the the entire the entire movie was full of full of the bizarre bizarre things oh my goodness absolutely i i know one of the like robert shaw has always had uh you know a callous demeanor on screen and i i know for um the production of this uh, as well as like actually getting this film together and making it work i know there was issues on set between the actors as well um between oh yeah uh, yeah robert shaw and and richard dreyfus um, apparently they're, they're, they did not like each other at all. No, no. And like uh, uh, the dynamic apparently was very much like it was in the movie, which is just very odd. Uh, in that, like, you know, he, uh, Shaw would apparently say things to like Dreyfus, like, I bet you can't do 20 pushups. Bet you can't do 20 real pushups. And Dreyfus like, I, I could do, I could do 20 pushups. I could do it. No problem. And then like, okay, do it tomorrow morning for me. And then, like, Shaw would, like, leave. And then, like, Shaidu would be, like, to Dreyfus, he'd be like, do you know how hard it is to, like, actually do 20 good push-ups? You cannot do 20 good push-ups. Like, what are you doing? Like, why Why is this happening? <laughs> and lo and behold, he could not do the push-ups. So it's, like, Shaw won. And, you know, he just, like, constantly was, like, badgering Dreyfus. And it's just, like, I wonder if that was, like, uh, character thing like ah, i'm in character i'm just gonna break this guy's balls or they really just hated each other i couldn't you couldn't really tell i i don't know but it, i mean unfortunately like good and bad it, it worked in the film's favor because the tension they had on screen you know was so perfect it, it was palpable you know um hooper just loathed quinn <laughs> <laughs> truly truly i i, I think my favorite moment of the film when hooper is just absolutely sick and tired of quint is when he's making faces behind his back on the so, boat he's he's like holding his fingers in his mouth like hooking his uh gums and kind of sticking his tongue out and he's just like ah <laughs> it's so I, goofy, I, I feel I like it. i've had that moment with people where it's just like ah i can't hit you but uh, God, you make me so angry. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Their relationship is is so funny. Which it just it, one of the things that uh, is very fascinating about Jaws is that it's it's so much like a two. They call it, a lot of people say it's like a two act movie instead of a three act movie because it's all the introduction and amity, and then it's the climax basically. Like it, it there's like it there's two almost entirely different portions of the movie that have like minor touches where they kind of weave in but as soon as they're out on the ocean it's like an ent almost an entirely different movie uh but it all fits because that's the point right it's supposed to be everyone out of their element and, well other than shaw obviously uh you know but uh it's supposed to be them being pretty much transported to a whole new world because that's basically what the ocean is like especially uh you know if you're in the middle of it and you're surrounded by nothing right it's almost like being in space that's why uh, so many space movies uh use a lot of uh, nautical language really like you know port bows and all that stuff mm -hmm. um so it's it's very fascinating because in in i think in a different and probably a lesser movie we would have seen a more bombastic end to Larry Vaughn's character, uh, for example, right? Like, they would have done something with 
you know, with the mayor getting eaten by the shark or right. punched out or thrown off a bridge or something. Like, I don't know. I wanted something. Um, and they, and they don't, they don't do it. And it feels all the more realistic because they didn't do it. And he just has to like stew in the fact that he let all of this happen. Mm-hmm. And they just completely go, okay, Larry Vaughn is in the past. Now we got to kill this shark. That's the only thing that's focused on. Like, we right. don't care about all this town drama. We're throwing this all behind us. We need to focus and we need to save the town, which is just, it's its a very fascinating because not a lot of movies can pull off. Well, I mean, it's Jaws. So, of course, when I say the phrase, not a lot of movies, it's kind of, uh, you know, an oxymoron. <laughs> of course, that's true. Uh, but they can't really switch locales and switch themes so quickly on and still be uh, part of a whole, which I think is very fascinating about Jaws is that, there's like I I was we watching it uh you know Jaws is one of those those movies for me where I don't watch it a lot because it's so special so it's like one of those movies where I like to save maybe every few years or so and then like really get back into it and really engross it and get all in and be like oh it's like it's brand new again <laughs> of course it can never be new again but it's 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 one of those movies that I really like to savor uh and and as such like I was really kind of completely caught off guard and completely forgot just how fast paced this movie opens because they're going all in right away and from a director standpoint it's in some of these scenes are insane because there are like 17 people who have speaking parts and they have to speak over each other and then you have to make sure that your lead is the one who's like heard and his dialogue comes through and you have to you know, control all of these people because there are some huge scenes that have so many extras and have so many random people who are moving with a purpose, which makes it all the more difficult because these these aren't just like there are scenes where people are just swimming. But when you think of that scene where they're trying to go and hunt the tiger shark, mm-hmm. uh, what? Uh, there are like, I think there's like at least 10 boats with like 20 people all running about and suiting up and getting ready. Right. Yeah. The choreography of that moment and, and throughout the film is uh, phenomenal. And, and I've spoken throughout most of this episode, just like, ah, Jaws is flawless. But I guess speaking to that, um, you know, in real life, people talk over one another. Um, people tend to kind of cut each other off and don't let each other complete their sentences. And that's very true in in Jaws as well. Um, and also the way that Amity is just kind of swarming with people, um, disregarding one another and, and just kind of like in a, in a frantic hurry, it just adds to the realism, especially the town hall scene where everyone's talking over one another and you can kind of hear their small conversations happening while other things are going on, you know? Like yeah. some, someone makes a joke at, at the expense of one of the kids dying or something like that and you can hear one of the townsfolk say like, oh, I don't think that's funny at all. Um, it's not just like a looped audio that you know, a lot of contemporary films have where it's just kind of random background noise. It feels very, very authentic. That is, yeah, that's a great point because, you know, that the, I believe it's a, the, the woman, the one woman who owns like a shop who says like, that's, that, that's not funny at all. And she has her own agenda going into that meeting. And if you like follow, just like, if you just listen to her dialogue snippets, as we get introduced to that town hall meeting, that also tells a story about what this character wants. So this is a background character that you don't have to pay attention to, but if you kind of like follow the progression of her dialogue like she is actually a character mm-hmm. and she has a goal and she has like a little arc in this scene and it's kind of insane because you can just completely miss it and uh, i think that really that's one that speaks uh wonders to uh spielberg as a director and also uh says a lot about the script writing process because you know it's uh it's hard to kind of it's easy to just say, oh, the whole town mumbers and everyone's <laughs> mumbling and there's something going on and they're rumbling about something. But to build these individual sequences and make these characters actually be characters, even if they don't factor in a lot, is uh, is actually really interesting, I would say. Right, right. And, and I guess on the topic of like um, 
authentic characters. I think we we were speaking earlier about how the mayor in Jaws doesn't necessarily have this climactic ending. Not like the lawyer in Jurassic Park that gets right. eaten on the toilet, right? Like the mayor just kind of like he realizes he messed up in a very big way and now there's only one thing left to do and that's hire Quint and kill the shark. That's it, right? And I think I love that because you get these you get this moment with Brody and the mayor where they're both at each other's end and they've kind of realized the mistakes they've both made, what they let happen, and because of because of the mistakes they've made, people have died, right? And they're both stewing in their own consequences. And I and I love that. And that sounds sadistic, but I love that so much just for the fact of it feels so human. Sometimes we don't realize the mistakes we're making until way after the fact. Uh, when when we're in a situation, we don't realize that we're doing the wrong thing. We, we all like to think that we would be the hero in our own story, but sometimes that's not always the case. We don't always step up to where we should be and, and helping out how we should be. And... I think that's such an authentic vision of, you know, quote unquote, the, the human experience is to kind of mess up, realize we mess up and try to find any type of closure to atone for, you know, how we fucked up. Well, yeah, that's a that is a great point. And I, I one of the, my favorite lines is, you know, is when in the, during that sequence when he's when Larry is like, my kids were on that beach, too. Right. Like he. He has that revelation of like the child has been lost. It could have been his kid like this is he's just completely distraught and doesn't even know what to do. There's really not even any point of him being at the hospital at all. Right. Like Mm -hmm. he he's kind of just going there to kind of look at his own mistakes, really, because there is absolutely no reason uh, as far as we know, like there's no injuries on him or anything like that. Um, So he's really just going to kind of like face the consequences and he doesn't really know where to go and it's it's such a it's a it's a fantastic scene in that regard uh you know it's really hard to do uh and and man so well acted by murray hamilton that like it's basically the jaw the mayor from jaws has become uh all of 2020 <laughs> i guess it's kind of yeah. like the meme of 2020 and you know there's a lot of nuance uh that you kind of lose in, in that in that scene and in that just if you don't really like take it for all it's worth right like I don't really think he is emblematic of 2020 because he has a heart and changes <laughs> and at the very least tries to do the right thing when all else fails. Uh, he's, he's obviously a bad character. He's a bad guy cause he fucks up a lot, but you know, you know, you can come back from that. And I think, um, one of the interesting elements that, uh, we'll talk about next week for Jaws 2 when we do that is that they actually did try to do a little bit of nuance with, you know, with Mayor Vaughn in Jaws 2, um, which is also a meme in that people just go, oh, he's, he's the, the mayor from Jaws is still the mayor in Jaws 2. Vote in your elections. <laughs> like, that's what, which is a hilarious meme, but I was like, well, you know, they try to give, you know, try to give him some more nuance in part two, but anyways. <laughs> so, I... I one of the things that I love the most about Jaws uh, and that gets hits me every time is just how well it captures the family aspect, uh, you know, especially from the Brodies, like all of the Brodies are likable and all of the Brodies uh, have like a little scene where you get to know them a little bit. I think uh, the one who suffers the most is probably like the elders, the eldest son, who I think is like 11 or 12. You don't get too many scenes with him other than the fact that he wants to go boating, right? Like it's the idea that, you know, uh, if the shark didn't come, Brody would have had to come to terms with the water anyways because now his son wants to go on the water and mm-hmm. that, that's and he and his desire to continue and keep going on the water well it puts him in danger in this movie and and that element works really well uh, but there's like little moments like uh, one of the best moments in cinema for me is when the kid is mimicking Scheider and Brode and like <laughs> his son is mimicking him and apparently that was one of those things that just happened on the fly like uh you know they were just uh they were all taking a break from shooting and then the kid started mimicking uh Scheider and then Scheider like called in like Spielberg and was like hey 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 look at look at this 
Look at what this kid's doing. And Spielberg's like, oh, we got to shoot that. That's amazing. And they just made it into the movie. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like a scripted thing. It would just happen naturally. And I think that plays off so well in the movie itself because it just seems like a natural scene to happen uh, where the kid is just mimicking his dad. And it's like this really, really cute, cute uh, moment in this pretty harrowing film. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the powers of the film too is a lot of Jaws um, is was kind of impromptu in in certain aspects. They were rewriting the script, you know, while they were on set, you know, day after day, um, and they were trying to figure it out as they went along and shooting those, you know, quick little moments of like, you know, <laughs> um, Robert Shaw making fun of some kid. <laughs> um, playing a clarinet or, um, you know, Roy Schneider, um, mimicking this, this younger kid, um, and vice versa. I think those are moments that you can't script. You can't always plan for because they're just so natural. Like, you know, thinking about some of the things that we do on a daily basis that maybe, you know, would make no sense in a movie, right? That, like, sometimes people don't even see that you do or that you wouldn't even think about. Um, I, I yeah. think that's that's the beauty to it. And just even kind of going further on, on my tangent here of just it, it's a very human story. And, like, the focus isn't necessarily on the shark. It's about our relationships with one another and kind of overcoming grief, overcoming um, challenges and how do we grapple with one another as a community, especially when we've messed up? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And well, one of the other are like, Oh man, Ellen Brody is so good. Lorraine Gary is so good in this movie Mm -hmm. and the way that they interact and their scenes together are just so good. It just feels so natural. Like, I, I don't know, like I've seen so many movies, but it never ceases to shock me just how naturalistic it feels when she goes up and like he's reading and she's like looking at the books and (laughs) she just kind of like leans up on him and it's like kind of bugging him like, Hey, put the book away. Like, Hey, I want to, get drunk and fool around and like it's just like such a natural chemistry between the two that just 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 floors me uh with how well it comes off and you know uh she does so well in the movie that you know you're you're kind of sad to see her go like you kind of wish she was on the boat too i mean obviously you know it's not really the point and she would get on the boat she would be the one who kills the shark and jaws the revenge so you know (laughs) she would eventually get her uh, just too, I guess uh, she could know better. We'll get to we'll get the Jaws Revenge. Um, but Best of luck. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Let me tell you, there's no books on Jaws Revenge, <laughs> so uh, it's mostly going to be reading that insane um, novelization, which includes voodoo. Anyways, mm. uh, look forward to that, folks. Um, but I love how natural, uh, all the characters are in this movie. Um, you know, you, you think of, uh, the scene with when another like dinner scene, I guess I'm really the dinner table at the Brody's house, I guess is a weird focal point for me that I just love everything about it because when Hooper comes over with the wine and they're all having the discussion and I think that scene like really hits, mm-hmm. So much, so much. I feel like this is just going to turn into a Jaws minute by minute podcast. We're no, that's gonna, fine. Gonna... <laughs> I'm happy to. I'm happy to start this with you. We we can, we can do this. Um, I I I've thought about this a lot too. Um, and like I I think that scene is really special because oftentimes in film you don't see people eating. Like right. it's something that we do and center ourselves around so often, but we don't see it you know, casually done in film. And so seeing people around this dimly lit dinner table, it's a family, this guest comes over, he he's awkward and jokey. They're like, you know, they're trying to talk and they're stumbling over one another. They're drinking wine, he takes someone else's food. Like, all of this happens so casually. And that's like, that. that's what a dinner party is, right? Right. And 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 I love that. And then, you know, he's like mimicking the kid and the kids mimicking him and um it 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 makes me smile. Like I'm smiling right now just thinking about it. It's it's done so well. So so well. And I mean, so I guess one thing that I definitely want to talk about, uh have you read the book? Have you read the original Jaws? 
No, I've actually, I've had my eye on a copy. It, it's an original copy, like first print at a local bookshop that I've been wanting to buy. It was, it's like 70 or $80, but it's something I would really love to add to my collection. So I, I've been really trying to just, I might get that and that'll be my first read in, what, in that original printing. That would be that would be amazing, uh, but let's just say uh, it's not as happy go lucky in the book. Yeah, doesn't um, she uh, she cheat? <laughs> oh yeah, she has an affair with Hooper, uh, right? Because right. like Hooper is like a hot hot hottie in uh, in the book. Oh, in the uh, movie too, though. Oh well, yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry, Dreyfus. I'm not trying to not trying to uh, you know mock you. I know you're listening, Richard Dreyfus. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to decry you. Um, but uh, the other thing that's real prevalent in the book is that, like, Brody, Sheriff Brody is, like, a sad sack loser in the <laughs> book. He is such a loser. And, like, he, I, I am one of those people who I also really like the book as well. Like, I, I, it's a great, fantastic book. And it's, and it's so different uh, because just the, the switching up that final dynamic, uh, you know, on the boat to be... Uh, you know, sad sack Brody and like hunky hunk, uh, you know, marine biologist who slept <laughs> with his wife. And like as that drama unfolds while they're at sea, uh, it just it, it adds a lot of different flavors uh, to to the to the story. So it's one of those things where um, people one way or the other, people like to make weird statements when things are like adapted, where they're always like uh, they have to take one side Right. of the adaptation for whatever reason. And I've never understood it because I'm the same way with the, you know, the original Jurassic park to bring more, uh, you know, Spielberg adapts <laughs> into the equation. Like uh, it's a lot different, right? Like Jurassic park is way different than the book. Uh, and I think both are awesome and both work. They just are different. And, uh, you know, that's what I really want. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't mind straight adaptations, especially if the book is great, but it, it does add an extra flavor to be like, wow, they changed a lot. Like they read this book and they saw that, like, that's really cool. Like it's, it's very different. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but apparently Benchley and Spielberg, like were bad mouthing each other in the press for like a long time during the production of this movie, which led to some very awkward moments, especially when Benchley was a cameo in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Benchley, Benchley is like one of the reporters on the beach scene. And, uh, you know, there were like interviews where they had both called each other like pretty mean, heinous things. Uh, they eventually were nice and they patched it up uh, because I mean, Spielberg was 26 at the time and he was under so much stress that like anyone's going to be a dick when they're under that <laughs> much stress, right? Like it's yeah. just going to happen. Um, you know, you get pressed, uh, you got to do like 17,000 interviews and all you can think about is how the shark didn't work or the weather was off or, you know, tide messed up your shot or any of the million things. So, you know, you can't really take all of that to heart. Uh, and then also like, you know, the press is, they, they took certain things out of context a little bit, uh, at least according to Gottlieb, which kind of like heightened the, the anger towards each other. But when they actually met, they, they got along nice. And then they had like a, a nice email court, like a mail, not email, obviously it's the seventies, <laughs> uh, but a mail correspondence where they would like, uh, Spielberg is like, look, I'm sorry. Like, Hey, thank you for being on. Like you made a big contribution to the team and then like benchley was like oh thanks yeah no it was i'm sorry for saying all these horrible weird things about you in the press as well and they like <laughs> smooth things over but the one thing that they did not agree on uh and eventually it was just one of those like all right whatever we're leaving this conversation is the death of the shark hmm. because um it's a in the book you know i'm not gonna spoil it it's it's different in the book let's just say it's very different <laughs> in the book um, because, uh, you know, eventually was going for realism, uh, and Spielberg was going for a bombastic, amazing ending. Right. Um, right. And it's those, there's what's good in a book is not always good in cinema. Um, it, it, w it would probably feel like a letdown if they did the book, uh, death in a cinema, but it works really well as the book. Cause you know, it's kind of the point of the book. It's like a metaphor. <laughs> Anyways, the shark is a metaphor. Um, but I, uh, you know, I love that Spielberg stuck, stuck to his guns and was like, no, no, no. I know that 
putting a oxygen tank and shooting it would not affect the shark. I know it wouldn't work. Like, I know it wouldn't do an explosion, but I don't care because it's good movie making. Right, exactly. And, and a lot of people say that, like, Jaws was kind of the birth of the summer blockbuster. Right, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I also put said that in my opening notes. I think there's pro- it's a little bit more complicated than that, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. Um, as is everything, right? Like, you know. <laughs> Uh, and production and, and going through all of that and figuring out release schedules and blah, 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 blah. Like, if you wanted to write a term paper on it, you definitely could. Uh, any university students, you know, talk about the birth of the summer blockbuster. <laughs> be, be fascinating. Uh, but it did undeniably had, like, a crazy, crazy huge impact on, on cinema in general. Um, and to the point of, like, the poster... Do you, so, like, the iconic Jaws poster... I did not realize that that is just, it's not new artwork for the movie. That's just uh, the paperback release of, like, that's the art they used in the paperback release for the first Jaws novel. Um, Because the hardcover of the first printing of Jaws has a very different looking cover. Right. It's Um, black, correct? Yeah. And and the shark is almost like a, like, pale yeah and i don't even think you can see the teeth in the shark like i think it's like uh it's it's a very different uh more foreboding uh image but the production company were just like oh yeah you can use this paperback cover whatever go ahead you know use it whatever and they gave it to him for free um and uh the gentleman who actually made it was a guy by the name of roger castell and he just like he just thought he was doing another job for a paperback company and, you know, uh, he he had, you know, an, an artist and he had her for a model for another portion of like another paperback he was doing. And then he's just like, hey, can you do like a swimming scene? And then I'll, you know, I'll draw it and paint it up and just, you know, get it, get there and I can model you. Uh, and he is inadvertently one of the most like famous poster artists of all time, even though he was just making a paperback cover. Uh, but that image has been parroted ad infinitum like i bet you right now i can find you 20 new parodies of that image uh from 2020 alone and i don't know the shark is covid or something believe me it's probably yeah. happens yeah there, there's i mean you could I, i've seen people do renditions of movie posters that are just simple geometric shapes and like you could tell what the jaws poster is probably just by simple colors and triangles truly truly it's just so iconic and i it just blew my mind like figuring out that it was just like some guy who just did a whole bunch of you know paperbacks right like that was his job he just spruced it up when it got went from hardcover to paperback uh and it just you know made a huge huge impact um and it's just one of those things about jaws is like every portion of it there is something interesting to talk about because it has such a crazy history uh, and there's so many people involved, so many people that you would just not think would be involved uh, that just like show up and just b- blow up, blow us up. We're basically, you know, it's really hard to podcast about this movie because there's so much <laughs> to talk about. Yeah, we, c- we could make a Jaws podcast. For real, though. Like, there's so much. There's so many like weird ins and outs and little items. And, you know, I didn't even get to talk about the Jaws softball team they had there or that (laughs) Bruce is named after Steven Spielberg's attorney or the fact that one time Murray Hamilton, the guy who played Larry Vaughn got so drunk, he went to go pet a dog, but it wasn't a dog. It was a skunk. Uh, (laughs) The fact that John Landis was the one who actually helped create the tearaway pier sequence. uh, You know, in, in that scene, they, uh, the fact that they were going to like bring over characters from the Sugarland Express briefly, and we almost got a, a interconnected Spielberg universe. Uh, you know, there's the whole so, thing like, with the Lady of the Dunes. Oh yeah, the whole thing with the Lady of the Dunes. Oh my goodness. Uh, you do you want to briefly outline what that one is? Because people probably don't know that off by heart. Yeah, sure. Um, so we we actually created a video essay on this because it's one of the most interesting in my opinion like true crime history bits of uh, american history involved with film but the lady of the dunes um it was a murder that happened the same year as the release of jaws um but basically a woman was found on the beach um near amity 
or, or say I should say Martha's Vineyard because Andy's <laughs> not real. Um, and basically, she was found uh, s- s- severely brutalized. Uh, I won't go into much detail. Um, and basically, a lot of people suspect that with the the clothes that were found on her, um, she may have been an extra in the film. Um, and the possible murders, um, on that list were like local crime bosses, uh, possible serial killers, um, a a bunch of different people, but the, the murder has never been identified. Um, and if you want to learn more about this, you can check out our video essay. There's also a great number of articles on this. You can just look up the lady of the dunes. It's such a phenomenal piece of true crime history that has, has still yet to be solved truly truly i really do hope they they eventually solve it there was a lot of in that like two-year time period martha's vineyard has some like wild true crime stories in it because you know that was like right after the chappaquiddick thing happened with uh oh one of the kennedys oh ted kennedy was it ted kennedy I don't know. One of the Kennedys. It was bad. Uh, and they literally talk about it in the book, too, by the way. Carl Gottlieb talks about how he got the police chief drunk and tried to figure it out. Um, <laughs> you know, But the police chief said that they had mysteriously lost all of the files. Mm. Which, uh, there's like a footnote on it, because this is like the 40th, uh, actually, I think this 30th anniversary edition of the jaws log so he every i think it's like every 20 years he basically does like another edition and then you know writes all these like extra footnotes to give any updates and tell let people know where all the people are um but in that uh you know he talks about like yeah i got a call from you know a few people in the in the republican party who wanted to know how i knew about this and uh, you know, I, I said, ah, here's a contact the FBI. Like, I don't have anything to do with it. I just, <laughs> this is just a thing I was told by a drunk police officer. Oh, and no. they did the research and they found out that, yeah, the, the files were missing. Like it was a very generic files. They didn't, they didn't have anything more than that, but yeah, the story was true that the files were missing. So, um, a weird, weird stuff going on in, uh, in Martha's vineyard. Very terrifying. Vineyard. Very terrifying. Oh my goodness. Scarier than any shark, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Be nice to sharks. They just want to hug you. <laughs> yes, lovely shark, lovely <laughs> sharks. I just love that story about like how an actual shark, Great White, showed up in Martha's Vineyard and they helped it out. They yeah, that was so out. sweet. I didn't know that story. I, I was smiling here listening to you tell it because I was like, you know what? Human beings can be good. We can be decent, decent animals at time. <laughs> truly truly it was like it was i think it was at the, it was at the tail end of one of the documentaries i was watching where they they brought it up uh and it was just a very nice story and i was like oh that's that's a nice way to end it <laughs> there are so many documentaries on jaws by the way uh and it's and sometimes there's a lot of conflicting information so if i found anything that like kind of conflicted with each other i decided to usually just kind of leave it out because i was like "Eh, i'm not really sure so i don't really want to say anything about it uh and it also like brought up a lot about just trying to research and be knowledgeable about film in general is that like memory is fallible right like people's opinions change and the way things are remembered slightly altered throughout the years and everything is wibbly wobbly and we never really know what happened on set but it's always nice to try to look into it and try to imagine what happened on set right so uh it's uh it's it's a it's always a bit of storytelling in its own even when uh you know someone writes a book on the making of or does a documentary or something like that so that's just the ephemeral nature of humanity, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess with that, uh, Anthony, what are your final thoughts about Jaws? And uh, where can we find all of your wonderful writing in the future? <laughs> um, I, as, as you probably know from the past hour, um, Obviously, I I love Jaws, and I I love Jaws for a good reason. I think it's one of those films that stand the test of time. Um, It it tells a very human story. Um, I think the effects still hold up. Um, I think its impact on cinema, it it can't be argued. Um, It it has some stake in in the beginning of the summer blockbuster. Um, It has some kind of stake 
in where we were as a culture as the at the time it was filmed in it definitely had some type of movement in steven spielberg as an individual um because you don't realize how much it probably deeply affected his life um and in probably a very negative and stressful way that pushed him towards some sort of direction later on um but yeah i i love jaws and I'll love Jaws now and when I'm 60, 70, 80, and hopefully 90 years old. Um, and I think it's something that, it's a film that you should revisit whenever you can, even if it's just once a year, you know, just to kind of put on and enjoy and just kind of, you know, pun intended, soak it in. <laughs> um I actually spoke on Jaws prior um, with one of our writers, uh, Victoria Timpanero. Um, she she has a YouTube channel called The Horror Academic, um, where we kind of got uh, into all things Jaws as well. And I highly recommend that conversation if you if you just want more Jaws content. And definitely check out that uh, Lady of the Dunes um, video essay we put together. Uh, a lot of love was put into that. And if you're into true crime, I think you'll appreciate it. Um, Andrew, I want to thank you for having me on and letting me gush about Jaws. You know, we we write about movies so often and I produce, you know, all these different shows. I often don't get a chance to just kind of gush about a film without being like analytical um, and just kind of being able to geek out. So I, I want to thank you for that opportunity. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. You know, you, you were great, great to have on a great guest. And, you know, you have a huge history with Jaws. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's always nice to kind of balance the informative with just the love of cinema, because, you know, when we really get into it, cinema's is entertainment form. So yeah, yeah, you, don't, you don't need to overanalyze everything. <laughs> Some things you can just enjoy. Absolutely. You hear that, Internet? Some things you can just enjoy. You, you don't need to overanalyze everything. I'm going to get that tattooed on me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm going to get tattooed that scene where Quint yells at the boy playing a clarinet. <laughs> please, please. I I, I need photos. Uh, <laughs> on one, arm, one arm will be like the boy playing the clarinet. The other arm will just be, you know, Robert Shaw's Quint like yelling at him. Can we uh, make that the new cat meme where it's like the lady yelling? yelling at the cat at the table like oh we, it could, oh it could just it could just it could just be totally robert shaw on the in. clarinet yeah we could do oh that my God. oh like <laughs> oh goodness gracious well be prepared for all those memes uh, oh. when you're hearing this you'll be like wow this is where that viral meme started <laughs> exactly exactly um if if you want more uh film content if you want to just find me personally i'm on twitter at am darrington and of course you can find the great genre film work that we do on our website somethingghoulish.com um we're everywhere else on social media uh wherever you linger um but yeah talk movies with me and and everyone else we're, we're excited to chat and kind of get nerdy perfect perfect and honestly people you really you really should be checking out something ghoulish uh you know absolutely and and i'm i'm glad you acknowledge that one of the things we try and do is make sure we uplift you know a variety of voices and it's not just kind of the same ones you can consistently hear in media so um you know we try and kind of give a an array of opinions and you know thoughts on kind of the culture and the culture of movies hell yeah hell yeah <laughs> And if you like this podcast, you can always rate us five stars or whatever rating you want to give us on any podcasting platform. Uh, you can email us at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com, or you can even throw us a few bucks our way on Patreon if you are so inclined at milkshakesandmimosas on Patreon. <laughs> uh, if you're looking for all of the sources and all of the information as to where I got everything that I'm telling you now and told you in the information package, uh, they will be in the show notes, so you can make sure to buy and read the Jaws yummy yumminess. Thank you, and have a great day. Goodbye.